First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when, your, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the previous few verses in the end of chapter 4 are verses all about how believers ought to endure suffering in faithfulness to God. And verse, chapter, the beginning of chapter 5 here is a direct response. That word, so, or therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Peter is giving instructions as to how elders, and then in verse 5, the rest of the congregation ought to respond to the challenges and the suffering that we will endure for the sake of Christ in this life. And in particular, having faithful elders are critical to the church enduring suffering in faithfulness to God. We can think by analogy of the non-commissioned officers in the armed forces. And in fact, the United States Department of Defense has a little treatise on non-commissioned officers, sergeants, petty officers, and warrant officers. Excuse me, warrant officers aren't NCOs. Anyway, uh, their book is called Non-Commissioned Officers, The Backbone of the Armed Forces. Sergeant Major Alfred L. McMichael, a retired, I believe, Marine Corps sergeant, said, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't shoot, you can't physically train without an effective NCO in your unit. The analogy breaks down a little bit in the sense that elders in the church do not simply issue orders and expect to be obeyed, except on the basis of God's word. The church is not a military organization, but you can see perhaps the analogy in that we, the armed forces, need these men and women in order to faithfully carry out their mission. And likewise, the church needs faithful men to serve as elders, to be guides in a Christian life that is marked by suffering. For example, shepherds bring you the gospel message of Christ's sufferings and glory, which Peter refers to in chapter 4, verse 13, as a feature of our own sharing in faith. Shepherds teach you to avoid sin so that when you are insulted, it is for the name of Christ and not only for your own uh, shortcomings, responding to chapter 4, verse 14. And responding to chapter 4, verse 17, we even see that faithful elders will shepherd you so that you are able to stand in the judgment of God. Well, how do, how do elders shepherd effectively? Well, it starts according to Peter in, this, in these few verses, with humility. 
The way that Christ humbled himself to save his people serves as a pattern for the leadership of elders in the church. So we're going to look first in verse 1 at the pattern of Christ's humility and reward. Second, in verses 2 through 4, elders own humility and reward. And verse 5, all believers' humility and reward. Now first, we see in verse 1 that Peter speaks of Christ's own humility and reward, or his glory that is about to be revealed. And if you've uh, been hearing all of my sermons on First Peter, you notice that's a theme that I've been coming back to time and time again, of Christ's humility and reward. And I'm not sorry to keep coming back to that theme, uh, because in this letter, Peter, in God's word, keeps coming back to that theme of how Christ suffered and came, and came into his glory so that we too, being made like Christ, all endure suffering and will be brought in to his glory. Now, Peter is a witness of Christ's sufferings, it says here. And so Peter saw firsthand the weariness that Christ endured in his earthly ministry Peter saw how he was misunderstood by friends. And in fact, Peter was one of those friends who misunderstood Jesus. Peter saw how Jesus was opposed by his enemies, such as the Pharisees. Peter saw at least a portion of Jesus' all-night trial the night before he died. Peter saw how he was abandoned by his friends and was in fact, a friend who abandons Jesus. We don't know whether Peter saw this or simply heard of it. The scriptures don't say. But Peter certainly can testify to Jesus being beaten and scourged, a, um, a form of torture so severe that even your, your guts could be, tor- could be ripped out of your torn open belly. And then, of course, Peter either saw or knew of Jesus being crucified. Peter is an eyewitness of many of these things and is able to testify to every single one of them. And so Peter knows not to treat Christian suffering lightly. He has seen firsthand how severe suffering for the sake of the gospel can be. And this is all part of how Christ shepherded us. For Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus, in his suffering, laid down his very life for his, for his sheep. But Christ had a reward from his suffering. He for Peter also refers to the glory that is going to be revealed. And Christ's glory at his revelation 
is going to be more than commensurate with his sufferings. He will be revealed for all to see. He will welcome all of us fully into his kingdom. All of those who are his people and all of those who rejected him in this life, especially those who personally tormented him and tortured him and crucified him, he will, uh, they will see his victory. He will be vindicated over against all those who oppose him. And he will have the joy of welcoming us into his kingdom. Now, Peter doesn't mention this fact, but he has also had some firsthand experience of Christ's glories. Peter was a witness of the transfiguration, an eyewitness of Christ's transfiguration. Peter saw personally the resurrected Jesus, and he saw his ascension. So Peter saw the first stages in Christ's glorification, and now eagerly awaits the glorification that uh, is going to be Christ's when he appears in glory for everybody to see. A few other examples of these foretastes of glory, Stephen has seen it. In Acts 7, 55 and 56, it says that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. For that matter, Daniel has seen it. In chapter 7 of his book, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So these men have seen foretastes of Christ's ultimate victory, and they have seen what it will be like when his glory is revealed for all to see. And so in Christ, we see a pattern emerging of humility, even perhaps to the point of death in his case and in the martyrs, but also that there is a reward that is commensurate with all the suffering that you endure. And so as we turn now to verses 2 to 4, these instructions to the elders, Peter has an exhortation particularly directed to elders to shepherd with humility, but also with an expectation of reward. For Peter calls the elders to shepherd in a way that is very different from the way the world sees or exercises leadership and authority. I love this word shepherding here. It's so helpful to see what a faithful shepherd looks like. For a shepherd takes care of the sheep. Now, I know a thing or two about sheep. I have some. So, I can tell you all about them. And Sheep are famous for herding. Sheep travel in a herd. Uh, because a sheep's only defense mechanism is in numbers. So if you ever have an individual sheep, don't do that, first of all. Your sheep will be stressed out because that is what makes a sheep feel safe, is to be in numbers. But the problem with that is that it just means that the sheep will get picked off one by one. 
this happened to us one year. We had a cougar that came to our property, and we had, we had five dead lambs the next day. Only one lamb had been attacked uh, and, ha and had evidence of being torn apart by this cougar. The other four died out of stress, probably out of heart attack from the stress of, being, uh, of, of the cougar appearing among them. But a shepherd can guard the sheep from predators. Paul gives this exhortation to the elders in Ephesus, if I remember correctly, in Acts chapter 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And he tells these elders to protect the flock, to teach them the word of God, and to be faithful to defend them from false teaching, the wolves that can pick off the sheep that are in his pasture. Well, shepherds, good shepherds, don't only defend their sheep from predators, but a good shepherd also leads, to, leads their sheep to food and water. Now, today, if you have sheep, you can fence in your pasture and you can leave out a bucket and a hose, and so your sheep will have no problem finding uh, good pasture and good water, but that wasn't the way that it was back then. Shepherds, uh, they didn't exactly live a nomadic lifestyle, but there weren't fenced-in pastures like there are today. And so the shepherd actually had a responsibility to lead their sheep to where they could eat and to be watered. Martin Luther said that we shepherd the flock by preaching the gospel to the people of God. And you can see this in the way that Moses says in Deuteronomy 8.3, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so elders have a dual task in this work of shepherding in defending its members from false teaching and in feeding the people on the pure word of God. And for those of you who are elders here, Peter will shortly refer, refer to the chief shepherd. So remember that you are shepherds under a chief shepherd, and you are accountable to him. This is God's flock. It's not your flock. You shepherd God's way for God's glory and not for your own. Peter is returning back to a theme that he's talked about back in chapter 2, verse 25. He says to the people he's writing to that you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So those of you who serve as elders have a responsibility not to take advantage of the sheep for your own, own ends, but to use your position for God's ends. Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder here, and we know that Peter's an apostle. Uh, but Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder, one of a company of elders. Your ministry as an elder is an extension of the apostolic ministry. Now, you're not apostles, but your ministry is founded on the foundation of the apostles. So you do not serve on your own authority or for that matter, even with your own methods. 
What we need in elders is not innovation. We need faithfulness. And Edmund Clowney observed that love of God is the only way that you can shepherd well. For Peter received a commission, if you'll remember back in John chapter 21. Peter receives a commission from Jesus to feed his sheep. But what is the question that Peter asks, or what is the question that Jesus asks Peter? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And as Peter answers yes, Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Love of Christ, love of God, is the preeminent qualification for being a faithful elder. In fact, I'm reminded in um, Robert Louis Dabney's Sacred Rhetoric, he talks repeatedly about how the fact that a life of piety is the thing that you need most in preaching the gospel. And I would say that the same thing is true of serving faithfully as a ruling elder as well. And Peter also says here to shepherd the flock that is among you. You're a part of the flock as well. So you get to get down and dirty with the sheep. One thing I can tell you about sheep is that they do not stay clean on their own. And uh, I can tell you after occasionally having to wrestle sheep to the ground, you do not shepherd by staying clean yourself. Shepherds can't tend their flocks via Zoom. This isn't something that you telecommute into doing. But it requires living life among your sheep. And so you exercise oversight. Not like a boss or a manager in the corporate world. But keeping watch for your sheep. So this, keep in mind this main command to be a shepherd. And Peter identifies three attitudes of the faithful shepherd which all involve humility in one way or another. So we see here that the elder shepherds not under compulsion, but willingly, according to God, or as God would have you. Not according to the norms of leadership in society, but according to God's ways. So if you, need, if you want a manual for, for serving as a faithful elder, the place that you start is here in the scriptures, where God has revealed his ways to you. But first, the faithful elder serves willingly. You count the cost. You do it for the joy of the task itself. But you must remember that serving as an elder is a sacrifice. It comes at a cost of time. It comes at a cost of trouble. And even, as we see in James 3.1, more strict judgment before God. And so an elder must be willing to make these sacrifices you must be willing to humble yourself in giving of yourself for the sake of shepherding the sheep. And this office is not one that it ought to be thrust upon people. We've seen this in the example of James. He's been asked in times past if he would consider being an elder. He never felt the call. And so, appropriately, it was never pushed upon him. But he was asked again, politely, non-threateningly, every now and again. And this time he said, yes. He feels the call now. Elders serve willingly. We don't force anybody into it. But elders do it for joy. 
In Hebrews 13, 17 refers to this joy saying to, he tell, now in, the writer to the Hebrews tells the people of God to uh, do your part to let the elders serve with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Elders serve willingly, not under compulsion, because of the joy that comes, despite all the troubles that come with it. Elders are to serve not greedy, or not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And the Greek is a little bit more explicit, not greedily. For elders do not profit off the sheep. Elders do not use the sheep for your own advantage. You don't use the, el- the sheep so that you look good or so that you make a little bit of extra dough or anything like that. Now, it's for good reason that we're appalled at the excesses of televangelists that we see on TV who, uh, who, who preach a gospel that is devoid of any actual mercy, that is dependent on you sending them money so that they can drive Bentleys around and own corporate jets. We're appalled at that, and we should be. It's one of the most disgusting abuses of the gospel message. And yet, the love of money does work its way into people. And there are even preachers who have an appearance of preaching a faithful gospel message, who are not above the temptation for excessive material and intangible rewards. Now, 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18 do refer to appropriate Uh, financial compensation so that teaching elders may be free from having to uh, do perform worldly work but may devote themselves to the ministry of the word of God and yet it's still not meant to be a way to get rich and Paul even was willing to make sacrifice of this right to financial compensation and to work with his own hands so that he could labor among the Corinthians if I remember correctly But instead, the elder is not to serve greedy for dishonest gain, but eagerly for the benefit of others. This translates a Greek word that is related to the Greek word for passion. You serve passionately, passionate for the good of the flock of God. This is a word that is often used in non-religious Greek writing, referring to those civic benefactors who would enthusiastically provide their time and money for the benefit of their towns. Elders, likewise, must be enthusiastic for the benefit of the flock, not for their own benefit. And third, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Another way to put it, not lording it over those who are in your charge. You do not lord your authority over in your charge. Jesus says in Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. I once heard a fellow say of his small church, he was a a pastor of a small church, he said that he had 40 people under him. That's not the right attitude to have. The church is not structured like a business or like a military. It's not that kind of, it's not that kind of authority that elders have. Elders have an authority that's ministerial and declarative, serving 
you and declaring God's word to you. Not bossing or pushing people around. So you elders must be an example to the flock, especially in humility. In exactly the humble sort of attitude that we've been discussing in these couple of verses, verses 2 and 3. You must be an example to the flock, in humility in particular. But you can't do that if you're lording your authority over them. I want to take a little excursion back to verse 1 for a second. For I think that here in Peter's own writing, we see an example of humility as an elder. For he frames this, exhort, this instruction, not as a command, but as an exhortation. Now it is intense, he means it. But he hopes to persuade the elders to whom he's writing. He calls himself an elder and not an apostle. Now everybody knows that Peter's an apostle. But when it comes to this specific instruction, he appeals to his position as a fellow elder on equal footing. He's not pulling rank on the elders. Peter refers ultimately to his testimony to the sufferings of Christ and his confidence in the glory that will be revealed. Peter's ultimate credential is not in himself, but it's in the testimony that he gives to Christ and the confidence that he has that Christ will be revealed. And perhaps I should revise that a little bit. It's not even his confidence in his testimony, but it's Christ himself who is Peter's ultimate credential. Peter refers to himself only as a partaker, a fellow partaker of the glory, which is interesting because in Revelation 4 and 5, we see 24 elders likely corresponding to the 12 apostles and the 12 sons of Israel. Peter doesn't even appeal to... Now, whether he knows, of course, his, his future position is a question that we don't know the answer to, but Peter, nevertheless, he appeals only to his position as a partaker in the glory that is about to be revealed. And what a contrast to the early Peter that this is, right? I mean, you know from the gospel stories that Peter rebukes Jesus for talking about his death. When Jesus is being arrested, he cuts off the servant's ear. And he boldly made a promise he couldn't keep. He promised to stay with Jesus even to death. But he couldn't keep it. But now you see a changed Peter, a Peter who serves as an elder in humility. And so we see how the faithful shepherd does his work in humility. We also see here in verse 4 that there is a reward coming for those shepherds who serve faithfully. For the chief shepherd, Jesus, is indeed returning. And his return is an important motivator for faithfulness in this life particularly because in his glory, you see the reward that you are going to get to share in. You will have a share in the kingdom of God when Christ returns. And so his return is a motivator for faithfulness in this life because you have the opportunity to live in light of his kingdom. Come to earth now by your faithful living. In these two parables that span across the end of Matthew chapter 24 and the beginning of chapter 25, 
Peter teaches a few things about the importance of always being ready for his return. For he teaches this parable about the wise servant who serves his fellow servants, not knowing if his master is going to return soon. But the, but the foolish servant, his uh, master returns when he doesn't expect. And what does his master find him doing? Finds himself drinking and beating the other servants. But Jesus is saying, I might be coming back soon, so be ready. But he also says at the beginning of Matthew 25, the, in the parable of the ten virgins, that the wise virgins have saved up extra olive oil so that they are prepared if the bridegroom is delayed. So whether you think Jesus is returning soon or a long time from now, be ready. Be ready in faithfulness. Be ready for his return. Because faithful service has its reward. There is an unfading crown of glory that is on offer for those who serve faithfully. If we were to take this as a particularly literal translation from the Greek, it is an amaranth-like crown, the amaranth flower, which is notable for being a flower whose red color doesn't fade. And in fact, even as the plant itself withers, the flowers are notable for the fact that somehow they don't wither. Now, everything in this life withers and fades eventually, but the amaranth flower will remain beautiful even when you pluck it out of the ground. And even if you don't give it water, it will stay beautiful and bright crimson, just like the day that you picked it. And so this crown, this wreath that is for those who serve faithfully is unfading. So you may give up many opportunities for earthly reward in the course of your ministry as an elder. And that was especially true in Peter's audience, where elders who were known in the community would come under fierce opposition and attack. But you gain a reward that can never be taken away. Earthly rewards pale in comparison to the heavenly reward that Christ has for those who serve faithfully in his strength. And so moving on then from the subject of how elders are to serve in humility, we look in verse 5 at how humility and reward play out in the life of the rest of the church. Peter first here turns his attention specifically to those who are younger. And, And it does appear that Peter here is referring specifically to younger people. Now, perhaps this, is, this extra special admonition is due to youth's notoriety for brashness and impetuousness. I have to give thanks to James uh, for helping me find those words in the thesaurus this afternoon. I couldn't think of them. And so perhaps there is something to that, that youths are in special need for, on account of their zeal, special need to remember to look to the example of their elders and to heed their teachings. But it perhaps also reflects the circumstances in which elders were found out and appointed in the very earliest days of the church. Because back then, there weren't theological programs, there weren't podcasts, there was no Ligonier Ministries. Um, And so 
it may well have been that elders of the earliest churches were chosen literally by age and by exemplary character. They needed, of course, to know the basics of the gospel. For example, it says in 1 Timothy that deacons must, um, must, share, in the, uh, in the go- must share in the knowledge of Christ with a, uh, with a clean conscience. So there had to be some knowledge of the gospel and genuine faith in Christ, but deep theological knowledge doesn't appear to have been a part of that. So, so character attributes take center stage in the New Testament. Now today we have the luxury, as, and we should use it, of also insisting on some theological and biblical understanding. And yet even today, character remains paramount in the qualifications for elders. But back then, it, it may well have been that, that elders were chosen primarily for character and eminence in age. And so Peter's admonition to the younger may be literally directed to those who are younger, and yet also it has its universal application. So it's not only the proper attitude of young people toward elders, but also of all the regular members of the church. Steve and Jones are not the oldest people here. Neither is James if he's an elder in the future. And yet all of us, whether older or younger than our elders, by age, have a responsibility to um, be subject to the elders. And this goes against the spirit of our age, where youth and lay people are considered to have uh, some privileged access to truth, where new ideas have more currency than old ideas, and in which everybody is their own master. But instead, Peter here teaches that those who are not elders have serious responsibilities in submission to the elders. And I would remind you, remember, this instruction from Peter is a response to the trials that he is teaching us about in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. If you would endure trials faithfully, then be subject to your faithful elders. For all authority comes from God. And obedience to authority is obedience to him, provided that that authority, of course, is not in opposition to him. But moving on, it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now here, Peter is speaking to all the recipients of his letter again, both to the elders as well as to the younger. Clothing was a common metaphor for a changed way of life in the ancient world in ancient Greco-Roman literature. But it wasn't just a surface-level change. It is actually something that goes deeper than just the surface. And you can see this analogy several times in the New Testament, perhaps most famously in Ephesians 6.11, where Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. You can see it in many other places in the New Testament, that a new way of life that goes to the heart is described in the same manner as putting on and taking off clothing. And you have to remember that humility was extraordinarily countercultural in Paul's day. Humility was the proper attitude for slaves. People who had authority were not supposed to be humble. And in fact, if you were in authority and you were called humble back then, that was a terrible insult. Humility remains countercultural in our day. 
People are always trying to get a leg up on one another, trying to win a battle. But all believers are to be humble toward each other. So do not insist on your own way. Do not seek one another, or do seek one another's good. Do think that others are more important than yourselves. Remember that in all things, you don't need to win a victory on your own. You don't need to score points over against each other because you are found in Christ if you have faith in him. He has won the only victory that you need. He has won the victory over death itself. So if you have faith in Christ, you don't need to win victories in this life. You don't need to take one another on. But you have all that you need. You have eternal life waiting for you and a share in Christ's kingdom. So you can imitate the elders in your humility. Faithful elders do not lord their authority over you. You ought not to lord anything that you have over others. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter is quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 33 through 35 read, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. God foils the plans and purposes of the proud. In the church, those who are proud do tend to eventually out themselves. You can keep up appearances of your own strength, but eventually that facade will come down. I think in these sorts of admonitions, I think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They wanted to look good. They wanted to tell the church that they had sold their entire property and gave it to the church. But they kept back part for themselves. And it was their right to do. They could have given the part, and that would have been fine. But they wanted people to treat them like Barnabas, son of encouragement. I remember Pastor Martin saying in a sermon, maybe they wanted even a nickname for themselves. They wanted their own nickname like son of encouragement. They wanted to deceive the church. They wanted the church to think that they were great. But God made their secret known. God foils the plans and purposes of the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Those who humble themselves will not always find themselves rewarded in this life. You may suffer much for being humble in this life, but God gives grace to those who humble themselves, especially as you disclaim your own strength and you rely on Christ's strength, for you have no strength in you. You have no strength to do anything spiritually good. But Christ gives you his strength. Christ gives you his strength to save you from the dead, from death. He gives you strength to save you from sin. He gives you the ability to walk in faithfulness in this life, not perfectly, but sincerely. And one day he will fully rescue you from sin and from death when he gives you new life in his kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. And so those who humble themselves in genuine faith in Christ find themselves recipients of a share in the inheritance in his kingdom. And even in this life, you will find 
God's help and his gifts to endure whatever trials you face. And so all of the Christian life is to be conducted in imitation of Christ's humility and in an expectation of his reward. And this is especially true of elders and also true for all the members of God's flock toward one another. And I think that it's worth briefly considering what the shorter catechism questions 27 and 28 have to say about Christ's own humiliation and exaltation. For he humbled himself in many ways. He was born, and that in a low condition, referring to his poverty in this life. Made under the law, so subject to all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried, and continuing under the power of death for a time. Christ did all of this, even though all the rights and privileges of being God belonged to him. He humbled himself for the sake of his people, enduring even the cross, despising the shame, for the joy that was set before him, the joy of gathering together his sheep, you, his, you, the children of God, his brothers and sisters. But Christ received a reward more than commensurate with, with the suffering that he endured, starting with delivering for himself a people, a people of sinners, you and me. He was, but he was also raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated in glory at the right hand of God the Father. And in the final stage of his, of his exaltation, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. All people will see his glory. All people will recognize him. And all people will acknowledge him to be just. And so Christ's humiliation and exaltation, and especially his death and resurrection, won all kinds of blessing for you by faith in him. And he through your humility, is making you like him. And being made like him, you also will participate in his reward. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die for us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly came and that you humbled yourself. We thank you that you have been exalted. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying these truths to our lives so that we may walk in them. And so we pray that you would sanctify us, that we may walk in humility and faithfulness to you through all the trials of this life. We pray that you would strengthen our elders to be leaders and exemplars in this. We pray that you would deliver us to your kingdom in glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.